morning. Can you hear me? All right. Awesome. Well, thank you for those who are brave enough to come out today, and thank you for those who are watching uh, online. Uh, my wife and, and kids are watching online. They, uh, they're actually excited because um, with, the, with the coronavirus, uh, Disney Plus just got frozen too. So uh, that's what they're going to be doing today. Um, I think hopefully they're watching right now. But uh, um, take your Bibles and turn to the book of First Peter. First Peter chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. Um, today is actually kind of wrapping up uh, a series that we've been in, that Pastor Bart's been in all of 2020, really, uh, Sacrificial Living and um, calling today's sermon Sacrificial Testimony. Sacrificial Testimony, and hopefully that will make sense as we go forward. Um, I want to share just a little bit of kind of my story and, and background uh, I, I grew up here at Fullness, um, came up through the youth group, but then I, I got to actually intern with the youth group here. Now I, I'm over the youth group as as youth pastor, but um, I used to intern with the youth group here under Josh Walsh, the previous youth pastor, who was a big reason why I'm even in in uh, in ministry. And um, but while I was interning with the youth group here, I was in seminary here in town in Birmingham. And I was getting a master's degree in apologetics. Some of you may, you may hear that word and you're like, excuse me, is, is this guy speaking in tongues? Well, because I said it publicly, I'll give an interpretation. <laughs> you know, Paul says if you give a tongue, give an interpretation. Um, so apologetics is, is basically, it comes from, from a, a word originally in the Greek that we usually translate as defense. Um, that it basically means to give a defense, uh, to give a, a, a defense, a reason for why we believe what we believe. And the most famous verse, really probably in the Bible, I would say, uh, where this word comes from, it is in some other places in the New Testament, but is this verse in 1 Peter chapter 3. And this is what we're going to look at more in depth a little bit later. But uh, I, I have the word up there. It's, it's apologia, apologia in, in, the, in the Greek, and it's translated often as, as defense. And uh, this word really, it, it's, a, um, it's kind of a courtroom word, um, kind of what a, what a lawyer does in the courtroom. So if you can picture Steve Couch, what he does as he's defending uh, somebody, arguing for the truth of something in a courtroom, that's kind of the, I, the idea of this, this word. Um, so I, but I, I got my master's degree in it um, several years ago, but in the last several years, as I've just kind of looked around at our, you know, our, our country and you know, we're continuing to grow more and more secular. We're, we really are living in what, what some are calling a post-Christian time and age. Um, I think I've become more and more concerned with how it is that we're actually doing apologetics, how it is we're actually interacting with unbelievers, both in person and online, uh, here, here in, in this country. And I think I fear that we've we've kind of made apologetics a little bit more about um, arguing with somebody rather than how we actually interact with them, how we actually conduct ourselves uh, around them. And for me, this kind of came to a bit of a head last fall when I actually got to teach a class on apologetics at a Bibb County Correctional Facility, a, a prison here in the state of Alabama. Um, I got to teach a group of, of Christian inmates a, a class on apologetics, and it was a great experience. But it got me just to thinking more and more about how we're actually doing it 
um, here, here in our country and making it more about arguments than how we actually conduct ourselves. And, um, you know, young people in particular, they can see right through that. Um, you know, last two Sundays, Pastor Bart's been preaching on um, reaching, reaching younger generations, you know, looking ahead to the future. And uh, it's, you know, it's no secret that, that our younger generations are walking away in greater measures. And studies are showing that the, the percentage actually of skeptics, basically, atheists and agnostics in the, the younger generations, Generation Z is what they're often called, is uh, the percentage of skeptics is about twice in that generation as what it is in the U.S. adult population. And so I mean, you, can, you can know some good, some good evidences and arguments, but if they can sense um, any kind of hypocrisy or inauthenticity in you, they're not really going to care about, about the evidences that you give. They're going to see right through that. And I'm becoming increasingly convinced that our, our young people especially are not so much being persuaded by any evidences against Christianity, although for some that, that may be the case. I'm persuaded that more and more of them are being convinced by the, the actual personalities and the stories of the people, the individuals who are rejecting, who are rejecting the, the faith. And let me give you a, a very recent example of what I'm talking about. Um, some of you may, may know these guys. Probably some, the young people for sure are going to know who these people are. These are um, two guys named Rhett and Link. They're uh, very, very popular YouTubers. Uh, they have a, a channel on YouTube called Good Mythical Morning, and uh, they have a podcast too. And uh, they're very, very, um, they're, they're funny. I've watched just a few of their videos. They usually just do funny videos with food and that kind of thing. Um, but just in the last, really the last month, they each did uh, pretty long episodes, podcast uh, episodes on kind of their journey away from Christianity. I didn't realize but when these guys were in college, they were actually on staff at Crew, um, what used to be called Campus Crusade for Christ, now Crew. They were, they were staff members for Crew. Uh, but since college, they've both kind of taken journeys away, and now they both completely reject the evangelical faith that they used to, used to profess. And they're very, very popular on YouTube. Tons of young people follow them and watch them and, and find them uh, compelling. And so I think that what is oftentimes happening is our young people, uh, they, they look at, at people like this and they see that they're, they're very compelling, they're very winsome, they're very funny. And then they might look around at some of the, the Christians that they know or maybe Christians that they see um, who are kind of like the, the spokespeople. And uh, they're like, well, those Christians, they seem kind of angry. They seem kind of condescending. And these people are very, very attractive and very compelling. And so I'm going to go with the, with the skeptic. And so it's the personality of the people, their stories, that are kind of drawing, drawing young people away. And um, this ties in to how we do apologetics, to how we interact with, with, um, with unbelievers and um, you know, recently, just a few weeks ago, my daughter, Ellie, uh, who's four, um, I, was at, I was at home and I was in the kitchen and she and, and Owen were playing in the backyard and she runs in from the backyard and uh, she comes up to me and she says, Daddy, 
I want to be like Jesus. I'm, I'm trying to be like Jesus. Now, as Christian parents, when we're doing our best to, to pass on the faith, there's like nothing better that you can hear, right? I'm like, oh my word, my heart melts. And then she shares with me what she means when she says, I want to be like Jesus. She says, when Jesus, when Jesus crushed the snake and she holds up this dead bug on her thumb that she has squashed with her thumb, and it's, it's a dead bug sitting on her thumb. And we have a, a, story, a picture storybook Bible at home with a picture of Jesus with his head on the snake. And so Ellie's like, I, I'm trying to be like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. I, I, I killed the bug. So we, we're, we're getting there, but we have some work to do of communicating what does it mean to be like Jesus. And I think that's kind of how a lot of us are when it comes to this idea of giving a defense, um, giving a, a reason for the hope that is in us, as Peter says. You know, we know that it's, it's a biblical thing. It's a good thing that I'm supposed to be able to give a defense but I don't really know exactly what that looks like. And um, so some work remains to be done. Um, for, for many of us, you know, we think when we hear apologetics or, you know, some giving a defense for the faith, we think that basically just means learning a lot of arguments so you can slay somebody in a discussion. Or you can troll an atheist online and just shut them down and make them look like an idiot. Um, basically make ourselves look smart look smarter than they are. And uh, I've, I've been guilty of this. Um, a few years ago, uh, when I was living in, in Texas, uh, back before I got married, I was, I was a, a resident house parent um, with, uh, at this international boarding school. So we had students from all over. It was a Christian boarding school. And uh, I was a house parent for a house with high school guys. And the setup was kind of like there was this house that they lived in in my apartment was connected to the house. So it was right next to it. And, and there was an adjoining hallway. And uh, we got quite a few international students to this school who were not Christians. Um, they were just there to study at an American high school. And in um, my house in particular, we had some Chinese students. And I think pretty much all of the Chinese students at the school were, were atheists. And so I'm getting to, I'm still new working there as a, as a house parent and getting to know uh, the, the students living in my house, and um, there's this one guy in particular who's he's a Chinese student, and I find out he's an atheist. And I decide to take him one day to to the hallway of my apartment, and I open the door to into my apartment, and you can look right in, and there's in the hallway of my apartment is my bookcase with tons of apologetics books on my bookcase, so you can just look right in and see. And I think I said something like. You know, he's kind of a little bit struggles with English. And I said, you know, see, see all those books? Those books are full of all the reasons why what I believe is true. And I'm looking back, I'm embarrassed. At, you know, I was, you know, it was kind of like my personal Ron Burgundy moment. Um, like, I'm kind of a big, big deal. My apartment is full of paperback books of, of reasons why Christianity is true. <clears throat> Not recommending Anchorman at all. Um, but in that moment, I, I cared more about looking smart than I did about his own soul, the state of his soul before, before God. Um, so that's what a lot of people think of when they hear about apologetics. Others, they think, well, it's, it's just for, for people that are really smart, the people that get PhDs, people that get master's degrees. It's, it's for that. Those are the people that 
that are supposed to, to do this thing. Um, but if you think about it, here's that verse again where the word comes from. Peter says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense, there's the word, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. If you think about it, who is Peter writing to here when he writes this command? He's writing to just normal, everyday Christians in, a local, in local churches. So people from different backgrounds, people with different social statuses, this would have had to included people that could not even read. And he's telling them, be prepared to give a defense when they ask you for the reason for the hope that is in you. So whatever Peter means when he says this, he has to mean something that anybody who is a Christian, who's a follower of Jesus, can do. That it's for everyone. So today, if you're, you're here, you're a, you're a middle, school, middle school student, a high school student, Peter's writing to you. If you are in your 70s and you're, you're retired, he's, he's writing to you. If you're a stay-at-home mom or a businesswoman, he's writing for you when he's talking about giving a defense. Um, if you're a, a middle school dropout or if you have a PhD, he's, he's writing to you. This is for everyone. And so if we know kind of what, what he does not mean when he talks about this, what does Peter mean? Well, I want to go and look in 1 Peter chapter 3, and I'm going to actually start in verse 8 and kind of catch up to this, this verse. So 1 Peter 3, verse 8, he writes, Finally, all of you, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And I'm going to skip down to verse 13. He says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. I want to talk about three things from the letter of 1 Peter. Three things for us of how do we, as a people who live in a culture that opposes us as, as Christians, how do we do this interaction, this thing that, that is sometimes called apologetics? Um, and the first one, and these are, are in your notes if you want to, want to take notes, but the first one is, we have to embrace our identity as exiles. Embrace our identity as exiles. Now, this is really coming more from the, the letter of 1 Peter as a whole. We have to always understand context, right, whenever we're looking at a verse. And one of the, one of the themes, really, of 1 Peter is this idea of we as followers of Christ are exiles. I think it's three times in this letter that he refers to his readers as exiles or living in a time of exile. And best example probably is 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 11, where he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Now, it's possible that Peter is talking literally, people who are literally exiles, that they're in a country that, that they weren't born in. But I think it is more likely that he's speaking symbolically. 
that he's talking about being exiles in a spiritual sense. And if that's the case, which I think it is, that means that everyone who is a Christian, that we're all exiles and that we are living in a time of exile really until Jesus comes back because we don't ultimately belong to the the cultures and the societies and the country that we find ourselves living in, but our King, our, our citizenship is in, is in the kingdom of heaven, as, as Paul says. But the very nature of an exile, someone who, who's an exile, or maybe a term that we could relate to a little bit better in our day and age is actually the term refugee, um, is they're generally not very well thought of in the country that they're, that they're living in. They're probably misunderstood. They might be mistreated. Um, they're kind of seen as outsiders. They're not very welcomed and embraced in the culture that they live in as exiles. One of the other themes in the letter of First Peter that is kind of woven throughout is this idea of suffering. Peter talks about suffering a good bit. And he's, the idea is as exiles, we suffer. We follow after Jesus who suffered as an exile and we, we follow in his example. But now Peter, when he's talking about suffering, he's not necessarily talking about really intense, hardcore persecution where they're dragging people out into the streets and just beating them for being a Christian. This was written before the time of when Nero started doing really bad things to the Christians. Um, Peter has more in mind just what, what some have called soft persecution, soft persecution, um, kind of the idea that they're just, they're kind of marginalized. They're just seen as, as strange and maybe they're bullied a little bit, maybe pressured financially into doing something that they don't want to do. Um, life is just not the greatest for them. And that, that's kind of what, what Peter is speaking of when he's, when he's talking of, of, uh, of suffering. Um, now, we live, we live in the South, in the American South. We live in Alabama. And it's a lot harder, if we're honest, for us to relate to, to passages that speak of us as exiles, those who are seen as, as weird and outsiders. Because, I mean, let's be honest, we have lived in a country where we have enjoyed more religious freedom than any country in the history of mankind. And not just religious freedom, but for a lot of some of our, our lifespans, a lot of cultural influence as believers and cultural acceptance and even political power, the kind that Christians in the first century and even around the world today, Christians in India could not even dream of the amount of, of privilege that we have had as, as believers. Um, but of course, we, we see that starting to, to shift and change in, in our country, right? And you, know, you look at cities like Portland and, and New York that are far more secular um, college campuses, those who, who are on college campuses. And by the way, I know that nobody is on a college campus right now, but um, I'm talking about if you're, if you're a student or if you're an employee on a college campus, you know more what it feels like to be seen as if you profess Jesus, you're an exile, you're seen as strange, you're an outsider. And so that's becoming more and more the reality as we become more secular in in our nation, and I think we're, we're just catching up at a slower rate here in the South. We're catching up to the, the East Coast and the West Coast and the North. 
But as I, as I look out kind of on the landscape of, of the church, I, I kind of notice there seems to be a good bit of struggle to embrace this as our identity, that, that we're exiles. Because, I mean, let's be honest, who wants to be seen as the outsider, as the, the strange one? And I see there tends to be this almost kind of backlash and, and shock and bewilderment, like what is going on? Um, you know, when we see in, in, in politics or in entertainment or um, when a business adopts a policy that you know, we don't agree with as, 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 as Christians. And I think we, we start to forget that that's actually our identity as we are exiles. We're supposed to be seen as strange. We're supposed to be misunderstood. We're supposed to even be mistreated. At times, you know, Peter says this. He says later in, in the letter, in chapter 4, he says, Beloved, this is the other beloved passage in, in 1 Peter. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He's talking about sufferings as exiles, facing the opposition from the society, the culture around us. Um, <clears throat> a few weeks ago, I was, I was having lunch with um, actually one of the young people here at Fullness, one of the young guys here. And uh, we were talking about how culture is becoming more secular and more opposed to, to Christian ideas. And he asked me, he said, so what do you think about that? What's your, what's your opinion about that? And I thought about it for a second, and I said, well, I think it's both a bad thing and a good thing. You may think, well, that's kind of weird. Well, how can it be a good thing? Here's what I mean. I th- yes, on one hand, it's, it's sad and it's tragic to watch a society that rejects the gospel, that rejects the way of Christ. At the same time, though, here's what I think it's doing as society becomes more and more blatantly secular, it's eliminating people's abilities to be casual Christians. Like the ground is literally shrinking underneath their feet and increasingly you either you're in or you're out with Jesus. And there's not a middle ground that you can be on. And so those who are authentic followers of Christ are suddenly really distinguished from the culture around them. They're able to truly stand out. And I think that is a good thing. And so I think that what we need to start, the mentality that we need to start having is to not see this secularization as a tragedy, even though in a sense it is, but to see it as an opportunity that we can truly be a witness for Christ in this, in this day and age. So we need to embrace our identity as exiles. But not only that, number two, Number two, we have to choose hope over fear. Choose hope over fear. Now, believe it or not, I, I wrote this, this point before the coronavirus got really bad. Um, but it, it's amazing. It feels like it, it just it fits. Um, we definitely see fear around us right now. But we need to choose hope over fear. Now I'm going to the, the specific passage that I want to look at. 1 Peter 1, I'm sorry, 1 Peter 3.14 He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, meaning those who oppose you, nor be troubled. Now, 
I think it is so fascinating. Peter actually has an Old Testament passage in mind here when he writes this. He has a, a passage in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 8, that he, he's referring to. And the story there in Isaiah 8, the situation is the Assyrian army, the Assyrian army is, is coming. They're about to invade Israel and drag them off into exile. So it's an exile passage that, that Peter has in mind here in the Old Testament. And Isaiah writes in Isaiah 8, verse 12, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. And if that looks familiar, it's because Peter has that verse in mind when he says, don't fear those who oppose you. As you, as you live as an exile, as you get ready to go into exile, don't fear those who oppose you. But he says, rather than fear, he says, we should hope. Be prepared to give a defense when they ask you for the reason for your hope. So he's assuming that, that we actually have hope that people are asking about, right? That's, that's why they're asking, because we have hope. So here's what I think Peter is doing here. He's setting up a contrast. He's contrasting fear with hope. And I think that whenever you have someone who is in exile or who is going into exile, that is always the choice that is placed before them. Are we going to react out of fear, or are we going to react out of hope? Are we going to be a people of fear or a people of hope? Because, I mean, let's, let's be honest again. You know, if, if you're in exile, you don't really have any influence. You're no longer part of the, the cultural norm. You don't have the sway in the culture. So, you're just, you're kind of having to hold on. And a lot of times, the way that fear plays out, which of course fear is what we're, we're drawn to, fear can play out um, in anger. It tends to be the case that um, fearful people, a lot of times they become angry people, right? And I mean, we're, we're literally seeing that around our country right now. Um, you know, read on the news, you know, you go to Sam's Club. Um, and people are fighting over, over toilet paper. Um, the other day, uh, yesterday morning, Corey Ferguson was sharing in our, our men's, uh, men's small group that he had gone to, to Walmart um, the other day, and they'd wheel out a, a big cart t- stacked with, with toilet paper. They couldn't even get it on the shelf. Um, people were just on it and just, just swarming and grabbing the toilet paper and, and um, people are getting in fights. So fearful people tend to become angry people. But Peter is saying, rather than react out of fear, we, we're to be known as a people of hope. And now Peter is not talking about just some vague general hope. He means something very, very specific when he says, be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in you. He's actually already referred in, earlier in the letter to what this hope is. In 1 Peter 1, 3, so at the very beginning of his letter, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so we have hope as believers, not because 
we enjoy cultural influence or political power because these, these believers had none of that. But we have hope because Jesus is risen, because Jesus is reigning, because Jesus is going to return, and we're also going to get resurrection bodies. And that is the reason for why we have hope. Amen? And this is the kind of hope that doesn't make sense to the world around us. But a hope that doesn't make sense is a hope that people are going to be curious about. They're going to ask you, why do you have hope? What's going to, what is going to be more attractive to people, to unbelievers? What is going to be more attractive to young people? If we, as the church, are known as a fearful people who tend to get angry about what's going on, or if we, as the church, are known who, as people who have an unshakable hope, no matter what the circumstances are. Um, I'm going to read a, a quote from Russell Moore. I love this quote, and uh, it's a very long quote, but I just I think it's so good. <clears throat> it goes right along with what, what we're talking about. Um, he's speaking about the church. He says, If all we have to go on is what we see around us, then of course we will become scared and outraged, and our public witness will turn into an ongoing temper tantrum designed just to prove to our opponents and to ourselves that we are still here. And in so doing, we would employ the rhetorical tricks of other insecure movements, sarcasm, vitriol, ridicule. He says, a gloomy view of culture leads to meanness. If we believe we are on the losing side of history, we slide into the rage of those who know their time is short. Love the way he puts that. But then he says, speaking of the church, We have no reason to be fearful or sullen or mean. We're not the losers of history. We're not slouching toward Gomorrah. We are marching toward Zion. The worst thing that can possibly happen to us has already happened. We're dead. We were crucified at Skull Place under the wrath of God. And the best thing that could happen to us has already happened. We're alive in Christ, and our future is seated at the right hand of God, and he's feeling just fine. He goes on, Jesus is marching onward with us or without us, and if the gates of hell cannot hold him back, why on earth would he be panicked by Hollywood or Capitol Hill? Times may grow dark indeed, but times have always been dark since the insurrection of Eden. Nonetheless, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, the darkness will not, the darkness cannot overcome it. Amen? So let's choose hope over fear. And then lastly, we have to testify to the uniqueness of Jesus. This is where the title of the sermon comes in, Sacrificial Testimony. We have to testify to the uniqueness of Jesus. And here's the the main verse. 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And I've read this verse more times than I can count, but I always used to just blow over the first part and just go right to the be prepared to give a defense part. Um, you know, that's, that's the apologetics part. But I'm convinced now that the key, the whole key to the verse is the part that I've underlined. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. 
which that could also be translated as set Jesus apart in your hearts. Set him apart as unique in your hearts. And the idea, I think, that Peter is is saying is, as you set him apart as unique, then you'll be able to give your defense for the hope that is in you. The more set apart Jesus is in your hearts, the more set apart he's going to be in your words and in your speech. The best defenders of the faith are those who are most in love with Jesus. The ones who are most impressed by the uniqueness of Jesus. They're the best defenders of the faith. Um, So, Going back to what I, what I said before, Peter's point is you can do this. Whoever you are, if you know Jesus, you can do this. You may say, well, I don't consider myself to be very smart. I don't know any intellectual arguments for the existence of God or you know, why we can trust the Bible. Or, and I don't know how to respond to the objections that people throw out against Christianity. Well, can you speak of the greatness of Jesus? Is Jesus so set apart in your heart and you're just so impressed by him that what's in your heart just spills out when you're talking about him with others? That, that is a compelling hope. I love the way Tim Keller says it, who's my personal favorite um, defender of the faith. He says, there is a way of telling the gospel that makes people say, I don't believe it's true, but I wish it were. You have to get to the beauty of it, and then you can go back to the reasons for it. I love that. I love that. We've been talking about that in the youth group this, um, this spring. Let, let's, we have to learn to tell the gospel as a beautiful story because that is what draws people when they see it. And they, and they say, well, I don't have all my doubts and questions answered. I'm not sure if I believe it's true yet, but, man, I wish it was because that is amazing. And the gospel is amazing. Remember how I said um, that, that Peter was, was referring to a, an Old Testament passage in Isaiah, in Isaiah 8, with the, the Assyrian army coming and not to be afraid? Um, I think it's so fascinating. The very next verse that, that is in that Isaiah passage says this, um, Isaiah 8, 14. And this is actually quoted in an earlier part in First Peter. And... Uh, Isaiah is writing about God, but in, in Peter's context, really, he's, Peter's using this, talking about Jesus. He's writing about Jesus. And he says, basically, he's going to become a sanctuary, an offense, and a rock of stumbling. And so, as we testify sacrificially as exiles, as we testify about Jesus, to the uniqueness of Jesus... We can't control how people are going to react to us, right? Some are going to stumble over it. They did in the first century. In the first century, in that culture, they thought it was incredibly offensive that Christians worshipped a man who had been crucified on a cross, that they worshipped him as God. That was incredibly offensive. That made no sense to them. In our day and age, when we speak of Jesus as the only son of God, the only way to get to God, Some are going to find that offensive and a stumbling block. But some 
are going to find him to be a sanctuary. A place where they meet face to face with the living God. And so we, we speak of Jesus. I'll close in, uh, with, with this. Um, you know, we live in a time of, of information overload, right? That's to put it lightly. Where the, the opinions and, and the, the, the options, the spiritual options, the lifestyle options just seem like they're endless, always coming at us, always coming at our young people. And it can be overwhelming as a Christian to think, man, how am I supposed to even make a dent in all of this noise for, for the gospel? And, uh, I mean, this is something that Gabriel and I talk about kind of regularly. Like, you know, how are we supposed to make any kind of an impact um, and all that's going on, all the noise out there, how we make an impact for, for, for the gospel. And um, there was a, a guy named Leslie Newbiggin, who he's, he's passed away now, but he was a missionary and, and a defender of the faith. And um, he asked this question back in the 1980s. So before the internet age, he was even asking then, you know, in a world with so many spiritual options, um, how are we gonna how are we gonna live speak for Jesus and, and, and defend Jesus in the midst of that? And he basically said, uh, in a world with so many options, when people come to us and they ask, "Why Jesus? Why is Jesus your starting place for truth?" We can answer, "Why not Jesus? Why not Jesus? Where else are we gonna go?" And I'm becoming increasingly convinced that in a world with so many options, so many opinions, that the only truly unique thing that we have to offer as the church is Jesus. Yes, we, we, we teach people how to live rightly, and that's important. We want to do that. Yes, we care about justice, and we want to defend those who are weak and the voiceless, and, and I, I care about that. I mean, that's important. Um, but those outside of the church are, are trying to do that stuff too. The only truly unique thing that we have to offer is Jesus, is the gospel. And that, I think, is what Peter means. Um, you know, somebody comes up to me and asks me, Scott, why are you a Christian? Or why are you still a Christian with so many people in your generation and younger walking away and, and uh, all the problems in the church and um, all the evidence is against God. Why are you still a Christian? You know what I'm going to say? I'm going to say, because of Jesus. Because I just, I find Jesus to be so impressive. There's just nobody like him. And I'm with him. I'm with him. And that's what Peter means when he says, be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in you. So I don't know what the days ahead hold. I'm guessing that there'll probably be increased secular, secularization of, of our, our culture, but fullness, let's, um, let's embrace our identity as exiles. Let's choose to be a people of hope over a people of fear, and let's testify to the uniqueness of Jesus. Amen? Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you rule and you reign over everything, and we thank you that you even orchestrate the events of history and what we ask for even now, um, for, for revival to come um, to, our, to our land, God. We ask that the church would rise up in this day and age 
and be known as a people of hope, as a people that are impressed with Jesus above all else. We ask for your spirit to fill us and go, um, to go ahead of us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.